and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we talked a bit about Constantine's rise to power, the legalization of Christianity with the Edict of Milan or the Edict of Toleration in 313, and we got a little bit into Arius of Alexandria. So Arius had this really popular idea that Jesus was not God, but was a creation of God, and maybe the most important creation because the most obedient creation. This was an idea, whether Arius intended it to or not, which perfectly harmonized Platonism, the dominant theological school of the day, with Christianity and made Christians look really smart at dinner parties when they could say, look, I'm a better Platonist than you are. I go to this whole Platonist church. Everything we do is about Platonism. And this caused a huge rift in the church between who said, no, we're going to stick with what the church has been teaching for the last 300 years, and those who said, yeah, but I mean... Being basically a Platonist and a Christian at the same time, that's pretty great. Do you really want to pass that up? And the church became more and more divided. Today we think about these kinds of philosophical and theological disputes as something that maybe happens in the pages of some academic journal that nobody actually cares about. But in the ancient world, this was a really big deal. Writing about a time just slightly later in the 380s in the city of Constantinople, Gregory of Nyssa, a great theologian in this period, said, It is a city full of earnest theological disputes, everyone talking and declaiming in the squares, in the marketplaces, at the crossroads, in the alleyways. If you ask anyone for change of silver, he will debate with you whether the sun is begotten or unbegotten. If you ask for the price of a loaf of bread, you will receive the answer, The father is greater, the son is less. If you ask whether your bath is prepared, you will be solemnly told there was nothing before the sun was created. So for people on the street, not just academics, not just theologians, not just clergy, this was a really, really big deal because you wanted to be right with God. And if you were worshiping a completely blasphemous, poor understanding of God, you were definitely not right with God. So Constantine wins this victory. And he attributes this just tremendous, astonishing, amazing victory to this God Christ who has come to him in his dreams, told him he would win if he painted this symbol with his initials on his shields and standards. And this has been such a huge triumph for Constantine that he very much wants to remain in the good graces of this incredibly powerful God. And so he has not been raised a Christian. He doesn't know that much about Christianity initially. And so he goes to the clergy to be taught. And he finds various currents of thought among the clergy. Some say one thing, some say another. Some hold to an older teaching, some are embracing a new teaching. And what's more, their disagreement is really vehement. And as Constantine finds this, he's kind of flummoxed. And he says, I ended the persecution of Christians, and now you all are persecuting one another. I don't really know which side is right, but will you please figure it out? Because we want to make sure we are worshiping correctly, we are believing correctly. I want to ensure that I still stay in the good graces of this extremely powerful God. Constantine sends his religious right-hand man, Hosius of Cordoba, who's a Spanish bishop, to Alexandria to investigate. 
Hosius talks to the patriarch of Alexandria, who is conveniently named Alexander, and he talks to Arius. And after the conversations, he says, yeah, this guy's totally not preaching the apostolic doctrine. What Arius is saying is clearly made up by Arius. This is not Christianity. Alexander, the patriarch of Alexandria, says, thanks very much. Glad you agree with me. I am deposing Arius. He can no longer serve as a priest in this diocese. Arius then leaves Egypt and goes to Syria. In Syria, his theological perspective is actually quite popular. This may be because Arius's ideas traveled there, or it may be that they were derived from a theologian of the previous generation who actually came from Syria, from whom Arius learned these ideas. One way or the other, the bishops in Syria were much, much more amenable to Arius's teaching that Christ was not intrinsically divine than were the clergy in Egypt. So the argument then becomes in part a theological argument, but in part also this kind of turf battle between these two great parts of the church. The church in Syria is extremely important, based in the city of Antioch. The church in Egypt is super important, based in the city of Alexandria. And so now it kind of becomes about playing out this old rivalry between two very powerful bishops. As this grows more and more heated, Constantine realizes this could be really injurious to the church, and how do we know that the correct side is going to be victorious? So he decides to call all the bishops together at a big council. And this becomes the first great council of the church, the first ecumenical council, meaning the whole church is involved in this council. Is it really the whole church? Well, that's kind of a debated point. By the year 325, the year of this council, you have bishops all over the place, all over the world, and each bishop is the head of his diocese. So in one sense, since you didn't have all the bishops in the world present, it wasn't really like the whole church coming together. On the other hand, you have really important bishops that are called metropolitans, and they're not more bishopy than any other bishop, but they're the bishop of a major city, a major urban area, and their voice tends to carry a lot more weight than the bishop who is based in some village in the middle of nowhere. And you have a lot of these metropolitans present. There are a couple of different early lists of who was at the council, and some lists are in the mid-200s, and some lists are in the mid-to-high 300s. So we can say there were between 200-and-something and 300-and-something people present at this council. We have mostly people from the Greek-speaking East. So these are Eastern bishops, and we know that there were only five or six bishops from the Latin-speaking West, as well as two priests who were sent to represent the Bishop of Rome. So it was definitely not every bishop in the whole wide world, but it was a whole bunch of bishops from all over the place. And it was a really good representation of the Greek-speaking eastern half of the church and a maybe more mediocre representation of the Latin-speaking western half of the church. That being said, over time, the entire western half of the church said, absolutely, everything you guys said at the council, we are 100% on board. The results of the council were almost unanimous. Out of all the bishops there, there were only two who refused to sign the acts of the council, who refused to rubber stamp the results and say, like, yes, this is our opinion too. So what happened? Well, there were lots of rules, canons made about the church um, that had to do with the authority of bishops and the way bishops worked and how bishops were rooted in one place. There were things like the definitive date of Easter was set or method for dating Easter was set. 
But most significantly, and maybe most contentiously, there was a big discussion of this guy, Arius, and his teachings. And Arius came before the, the council, all of his ideas were talked over very seriously and discussed, and when, then with almost unanimity, the church rejected the teaching of Arius. I say almost, because out of all the bishops present, there were two that refused to sign the Acts of the Council. There were two that refused to say, yes, this also is our opinion. That being said, what they were objecting to was not necessarily the teaching of Arius. Rather than being the two staunch Arians who refused to give up on Arian theology at the Council, these were actually two Libyan bishops who objected to a very different clause in the canons of the council, which said that now the bishops of Libya were under the authority of Alexandria. And they were like, what? We're Libyans. We don't want an Egyptian bishop ruling over us. This is ridiculous. So they refused to sign the Acts of the Council. Everybody else signed on in the condemnation of Arius. And this condemnation of Arius is summed up in something called the Nicene Creed. Now, the Nicene Creed as they wrote it in 325, is kind of like the rough draft of the Nicene Creed that we say. I once heard in a debate some church representative get up and say, and they've changed the Nicene Creed. They've changed these words that the Holy Fathers wrote in 325, and this is inexcusable. Well, actually, the church changed the words of the Nicene Creed. So the first draft is the Nicene Creed from 325. The second draft comes from the Council of Constantinople several decades later. So what we say in church, if you come from a tradition like mine, the Episcopal tradition, which says the Nicene Creed every Sunday, what we say is technically called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. So the original Nicene Creed was really meant to be the statement of what the church believes over and against Arius. So Arius is trying to create this kind of reductionist teaching in which the nature of Christ makes sense. He's not fully divine and fully human. He is great highly superior, maybe even almost angelic in some way, definitely human, but not God. Like, that would be crazy. That doesn't make any sense. And the church just pushed back and said, I know it doesn't make sense, but this is what we believe, fully God and fully human. That's just what we were taught. It's not a math problem. It's not something we reasoned our way to. This is just what we believe. And it mentioned a few other pieces of the church's belief, but it wasn't very elaborate. The original Nicene Creed then also ends with a set of things that would be very foreign to all of us that say it Sunday by Sunday, most people have never heard, called the anathemas. So it didn't end with just these kind of positive statements about the church. It ends, those who say there was a time when he, Christ, was not, and he was not before he was begotten, and that he was made out of nothing, or who maintain that he is of another substance than the Father, or that the Son of God is created, or mutable, or subject to change, them the church anathematizes. Get out of here. You're not part of the church. And at Constantinople, they said, okay, this is maybe a little harsh. Let's soften this up a little bit. Let's take out the anathema stuff, and let's actually talk a little bit more about what we as a church believe. What, are, what is the core of our faith? One contemporary English theologian warns, that whenever you're discussing the creeds, you have to divide the map from the territory. So if you look on a map and you see Austin, Texas, it's just a little dot. There are some roads. You can kind of tell where the roads intersect. You can look at the state capitol. You can find Barton Springs and Zilker Park. You can find the different locations. But that 
plan is very different from the reality of Austin, Texas, in which babies are born, people are getting divorced, there are people falling in love for the first time, there are people so excited because their football team won, there are people learning to read, there are people dying, there are sandwiches being eaten. Like, there's a lot going on in Austin, Texas, in real life, that is not even vaguely reflected on that map. So the creeds for us are not the territory. They are not the actual reality of life in Austin, Texas. They are just the map. So the creeds for us are these basic statements that we make about God. They are leading us in the right direction of God. The reality of God is infinitely bigger and more astonishing and awe-inspiring than is what is in the creeds. This does not mean in any sense that the creeds are kind of relative or flawed or wrong. This means that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. As far as the heavens are removed from the earth, so are our thoughts and his thoughts and his ways and our ways. So God is so much bigger than we can wrap our brains around. And this is a way to know whether or not you are on the right track towards God. If you are believing something that is denied by the creeds, then clearly your image of God is too limited, is too rationalistic, is too reductionist, is too small. If you are believing along with the creeds, then you are engaging in totally incomprehensible mystery. So let's take a look at that mystery. The Nicene Creed begins, We believe in one God. And that Greek word that they use, believe, this doesn't just mean we believe that God is something, or we believe this about God. What that word, pistuo in Greek, means, or pistuo men, we believe, it actually means trust in, or hope in, or kind of place all of my heart in, place everything I have in this one basket. To believe in something is to put all your confidence in something. So it's not believe in, in the sense of someone who says, I believe in ghosts. What they mean is, I believe ghosts exist. They don't mean, I place all my trust, all of my hope in ghosts. That would be a silly thing to say. It's more like what someone says in a romance novel. The guy who looks like Fabio is about to go face the supervillain, and he doesn't know if he can do it. All the odds are against him. And the heroine says, but I believe in you. She's not saying, I think that there's a high probability that you actually exist. What she's saying is, like, I trust in you. I know you can do this. I hope in you. All of my confidence is in you. So the Nicene Creed doesn't start out with a statement about God. It actually starts out with a statement about us. We believe in. This is the person in whom we trust. That being said, you obviously have to believe that God is to believe in God, to trust in God, to hope in God. So it's not this kind of like wishy-washy statement. Instead, it is a much deeper, much more intense statement than I believe that God is X, Y, or Z. So if the heroine doesn't actually think that the guy who looks like Fabio exists, how can she possibly trust or hope in him? So that, that sort of belief that, that's the kind of base layer. But the Nicene Creed is covering something way more intense, way deeper. I believe in, I hope in, I put all of my faith, all of my trust in one God. The Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. So so we start out with this statement about our trust in, our hope in the one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's important to note here that God the Father is not God the Father 
because he made everything, because he made heaven and earth. He's not the father of chickens and rocks and the planet Saturn and every atom in the universe and you and me. That doesn't make him God the Father. He's only God the Father because of the Son. He is the Father of the Son. And the Son is only the Son, not because he was born on Christmas Eve. The Son is eternally the Son of God the Father. So we believe in God the Father Almighty. Almighty. This does not mean the one who controls everything like pieces on a chessboard. This is the one who is constantly holding the whole creation together, who has certainly the power to control pieces on a chessboard if he so wishes, but it doesn't mean that he actually is exercising that power. Instead, in a sense, the fullness of his power is exercised in creating everything that is, sustaining everything that is, bringing to its culmination everything that is, but also in the incarnation of the Son, in the fullness of God the Son becoming this tiny, helpless baby who becomes this really good and loving rabbi who is eventually beaten and jailed and executed and destroys death itself. So it's not almighty in the sense of I'm the one who is actually doing everything in the universe and everybody else thinks they're doing things, but they're really in the matrix and I control the whole program. It's not that. And he is maker of heaven and of earth. So it's not as though there is this kind of like God realm where God dwells and he's been living there for a long time. And it's just kind of like the region that he belongs to. And there's earth where we dwell and we've been living here a long time. And it's the region we belong to. God made earth, everything on it, sustains everything here, but also made heaven, everything in eternity. All of the angelic host, the angel who fell and all those who fell with him, God created it all. He is the author and the preserver of all that is. It is his love that's constantly holding everything together. Those things we know about, the seen, and also the infinity of things that we don't know about, the unseen. It's all God's doing. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. We believe in one Kurios. We believe in one Adonai in Hebrew. Every time in the Old Testament that the divine name of God, which may be a form of the Hebrew word to be. So in a sense, the one who is, the one who causes to be, the one who is what he is. Every time this name is used, it's not actually supposed to be said in the temple worship or said in the synagogue. And so it's almost like crossed out and the word Adonai, Lord, is written in its place. So Lord is the primary name for God in the Old Testament, Adonai. We believe in one Adonai. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. From the very outset, you have this kind of overlap with the Old Testament definition of God. Is the Old Testament definition of God God the Father? Is it God the Son? Is it God the Holy Spirit? It's just God, actually. So we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Adonai is God. A point, of course, which the Arians were not crazy about. But just in case they missed that, the creed goes on. The only Son of God. This is, of course, the title that gets used about Jesus. This is what the demons call him. This is what the saints call him once they reach this point of incredible clarity. And this is also what he is accused of calling himself and the reason for the crucifixion. Eternally begotten of the Father eternally 
born of the Father, eternally of the Father, eternally of the Father's being, of the Father's DNA. So, as I may have said before, just in the way that two chickens can't have a baby and it turns out to be a gorilla, Christ's nature is God's nature, is the Father's nature, because he is begotten of the Father. The baby chick is begotten of the chickens. Christ is, in a sense, begotten of the Father. This does not mean that God had a baby at some point. This is mystical language. This is infinitely beyond our limited human comprehension. But this is what has been revealed to us in the church, that Christ is mystically, fully the Son of God. So, same DNA, everything that can be predicated of the Father can be predicated of the Son. They share one essence, one being, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, not created in time and space, but eternally begotten of the Father. There was never a time before there was God the Son, the Word of God. He's been eternally with the Father, co-equal with the Father. Anytime the Father was there, the Son was there as well. They are both eternal. And just in case you missed it the first time we said it, we're going to say it again. Begotten, not made. For the Arians, to be a son was really just to be someone who obeyed God. So if you do the will of God, you are in a sense a son of God. And this creed is wants to say, no, 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 begotten actually of the same being, of the same essence, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, of one being with the Father, just in case you missed it above, absolutely the same being. But to take it a step further, through whom all things were made. What does this mean? All things were made through the Son? In the very beginning of Genesis, in the very beginning of the Bible, we have this picture of God creating through speech. It is God the Father creating through the Word of God. In a very real sense, in the Old Testament, it is the Word through whom God creates all things, the Son through whom all things are made. This is also the picture you have in St. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word of God, the Logos of God, and the Word stood before God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. God the Son, through whom all things are made, through whom the Father creates. So up until this point, we've been talking about God the Son as cosmic being, eternal, before time, but haven't been specifically discussing the events of the New Testament. At this point in the Creed, we get this shift into the stuff that happens in the Gospels. In the Gospels... We learn about how, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. God the Son came down from heaven, the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, through whom all things were made, and became incarnate for us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was made human, and was made one of us. So you have this incomprehensible, astonishing, amazing statement that the one who made heaven and earth, or at least through whom all things were made, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God, from infinitely before time, became this tiny little baby in middle of nowhere Palestine in the very beginning of the first century. You have this demarcation between 
BC and AD, before Christ and then the year of our Lord, before God descended and became this tiny human being, and then after the period in which God lived as one of us. This is like the seminal transition in history, the most important thing that's ever happened, at least until the crucifixion. When, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a nice poem. This is not a meaningful allegory. There's this actual historical event which is taking place, and it is so historically, specifically situated and located, we're going to tell you who the governor was at the time. We're going to tell you about the role that the civil authorities played, because this is the moment in which eternity and time are fused into one, in the person of Christ. So the eternity of God matters, infinitely, obviously, but also the historicity of this moment, that Jesus was an actual person who was actually God, living in an actual time and place, being ruled over by some specific actual ruler. Pontius Pilate isn't mentioned because he's the most important Roman governor ever or something like that, but because the historical reality of this matters. And if you thought the infinite, eternal God the Son through whom all things were created, the source of life himself, coming down and becoming a tiny, helpless baby without speech was crazy. Well, the Creed has another thing coming for you. This same God the Son, the same source of all power and might, the source of life himself, dies and is buried. The death of God. There was sort of a popular 70s statement drawn from Nietzsche that God is dead. That was a true statement for about three days in which Christ was in the tomb. Like God the Son, not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, but God the Son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. He actually dies. He descends to the dead. In solidarity with you, in solidarity with me, he dies with us. He dies for us. And in those three days in the tomb, he destroys death itself. He breaks the bonds of the enemy. He breaks the bonds of sin, evil, and death, which bound humanity, and destroys them for all time. Even though Christmas has a lot of really good PR, Easter is actually the biggest day of the year for Christians. Easter is our most holy day of the year. And it's the day of the resurrection. It's the day which celebrates this bursting forth from the tomb of Christ after his three days lying in death. But we don't just celebrate it because we love Christ so much and we're happy that he's alive again. We actually celebrate it because of what his rising again means for us. So in the defeat of death, it's not just that Christ is too strong for death, death can't hold him, end of story, for death in Christ. It's actually the end of story for death itself. This is the ultimate eternal defeat of death. So St. John Chrysostom has this wonderful Easter sermon, which in Eastern Christianity is often preached every single Easter. And in it, he says, let no one fear death. Now that we have Easter, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. For the Savior's death has set us free. It's not just about him. It's actually about what happened to us on that Easter morning. He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. Jesus was prisoner to death, and now he has destroyed death. 
By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He embittered it when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry, Hell said he was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was slain. It was embittered, for it was overthrown. It was embittered, for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you are overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life reigns. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. Next time we'll continue exploring the theology of the Nicene Creed and talk a little bit about what happened next in the church. Thanks for being with me for the History of Christianity.